0: You are now listening to Macrodose. Macrodose. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Macrodose. Today we'll be reacting to yesterday's budget announcements from Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, and I'm delighted to be joined by none other than former Labour Shadow Chancellor and my old boss, John McDonnell. I worked for John as an economic advisor from 2015 to the end of 2018 when we responded to the budgets of George Osborne and Philip Hammond, if anybody remembers those two. So before we dig into the details on the Tory budget, we started by discussing what it's like being in the opposition box on Budget Day.
1: You've got to remember that all the cards are in their hands, all the cards, both in terms of the information that's available to them. And in addition to that, the decisions that can be taken. So when you're in the opposition, you're on your toes all the time. As you know, James, because you've been through this budget exercise with me, you're trying to work out as much as you possibly can in advance about what they're likely to say. And then you're trying to predict what rabbits they're going to pull out of the hat. you are responding on the floor of the House. is always the leader of the opposition party that responds. That's the tradition. That's the hardest speech in Parliament to be honest, and it's a tough one because, as I say, you're never sure what's coming at you. The interesting thing about this budget, though, is that most of it was laid out in the media well in advance, and so there there weren't any real surprises. I suppose the higher-earning tax on pensions exemptions, um, the lifting the cap completely was a bit of a surprise, but not much of one. We knew they were going to do something on it. So it was a, a lot easier this year than it has been in previous years. I always, as you know, I always say that the the louder the applause and cheers on the day of the budget for the Chancellor, by the weekend, the bigger the disappointment, because all budgets unravel in some form, some catastrophically, some of them just in minor detail. I think that's beginning to happen to this budget as well.
0: I was going to ask about that. I mean, what's your sort of headline take from from what Jeremy Hunt said yesterday and where you think things are going now?
1: It's completely divorced from the reality of what most people are experiencing at the moment. Um, for me, I'd just come off the picket lines for the civil service, PCS dispute. I'd bumped into the teachers who were going to their rally in Trafalgar Square. And actually, I'd also been outside the BBC because the with the NUJ because of job cuts there too. So coming into that, and you've got a tube strike in London at the same time, so there's absolute chaos in the society outside where people are demanding wage rises. They're, they're doing it because of the the hardship they're experiencing. It's interesting, like college lecturers, professionals, you know, who have trained for years, qualified, and the job that they'd hoped for and wished for all their lives, their profession is being undermined by pay cuts as well as insecurity. So... Just coming into Parliament, it just seemed like the whole debate was divorced from the reality of what most of my constituents are experiencing. It was a real Westminster bubble debate rather than something that would impact upon what people are going through at the moment. There's some stark examples as well. Just as an aside, I've been chairing this meeting of unpaid carers, a sort of a group that no one really mentions, no one really takes up their cause and I've been listening to just how tough their plight is at the moment and there was nothing in the budget for people like that. So yeah, you can get pretty angry, actually I do when I go into that chamber. I, can get, I have to control myself um, because I can get pretty angry about the neglect of the real world issues that are taking place and you have this sort of intellectual joust, well it's not even intellectual, you have this political jousting on the floor of the House of Commons. Which bears no reality to what's happening outside.
0: I mean, that was quite striking that, so to speak, that Hunt didn't mention pay, I mean, even once, I don't think. It was quite, what do you think was behind that decision? Because it's a definite decision to do this. And the day that you have hundreds of thousands of people in the streets protesting about pay as public sector employees, and for you to stand up in a budget and not mention once, it looks calculated. Do you, do you think that's the case?
1: Yes, definitely. And I'm disappointed it was on all sides as well. No one was making a fuss about pay yesterday when they should have done. And it was certainly calculated from the government because the last thing they want is to acknowledge that people are on strike and the reason they're on strike is because of low pay. But linked to that, I listened to a few of the young teachers' speeches in Trafalgar Square. It wasn't just about pay. It was their desperate desire as professionals to be able to teach in fully resourced schools and so it was a combination of and it's the same with the junior doctors yes it is about paying and retaining and, re, uh, and recruiting but it's also about just give us the resources to enable us to provide the services we want to provide and so it was about cuts to pub- the public services as well so again they I think it was deliberate from the from the government certainly not to get involved in the issue of pay because they know people are very, very angry and they're not offering much by way of um, respite in many respects. But also I didn't think the opposition was strong enough on going on it. So I think that's one of the things that um, the Labour front bench has got to come to terms with now, that they've got to be seen to be doing something on pay when they come into government because this issue isn't going to go away so we might as well get the policy sorted out now so and it could be a campaigning it could be a really campaigning issue for us as well which would enable people to recognise actually labour government will make a difference in their lives
0: I mean, the, the presentation of it and, and Jeremy Hunt's presentation is, that oh, well, inflation is going to come down, which it may or may not do, right? The forecasts say this uh, over this year. It's it sort of swept aside that this means that people are still being made poorer, just not quite as rapidly poorer as they were being made before, right? <laughs> the problem with inflation is a permanent loss. But I mean, what would you, if you'd been in uh, Jeremy Hunt's shoes without necessarily being a, a conservative, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, what do you think would have been the, the headline things he could have done, the top three that he should have done instead?
1: Well, just taking on that argument about inflation, you know, inflation will come down, but it still means pay is being eroded. Living standards are being eroded. And you remember the anger that's been built up is because people have had 13 years of this. They've had 13 years of pay freezes or pay cuts. So you can understand why they're angry about it. So I would have headlined on that yesterday. I would have actually said, what we're going to do in terms of pay is that we're going to ensure that we have inflation-proofing of wages, full stop, and just introduced it. And then they said, well, we, you know, it has to be a fully costed um, program. I fully agree. So therefore, I would have introduced tax measures, particularly around issues around taxing capital gains tax and dividends at the same level of earned income, those sorts of things. I would have gone for a financial transaction tax on the city, which is booming at the moment. So we could have easily found the money to enable that to happen. That's the first thing. The second thing I think we've got to acknowledge, and it's an almost unspoken of at the moment, we've got to acknowledge that we have levels of poverty in this country which are staggering, you know, 14 million people, over 14 million in poverty. Five, I keep quoting the statistics to be 5 million children, two thirds of which are in families where someone's at work, and people seem to have forgotten about the pensioners. 1.7 million is the last figure of pensioners in poverty, and it's rising. What's that? What's that all about? Yes, it's about wages, but it's also about benefits. So my view at the moment now is we need a significant increase in benefits. We should restore the universal credit cut that was made after the final months of the COVID pandemic. But in addition to that, I want to introduce, as we've done in pensions, which I supported the Tories do, I want to introduce triple lot for all benefits, not just for pensions. And in that way, as earnings go up, people sharing the growing wealth of the country and the same as their protective inflation goes up. So that's the second thing I I would have done, because I think we've got to increase benefits. And at the same time, we've got to ensure they're protected for the future. And the third would have gone back into the real debate about what we used to describe, if you remember, as the Green New Deal, Green Industrial Revolution. And I would have really gone hell for leather in terms of investment overall. The two parties were challenging each other on who could grow the economy more, well, we we want to grow the economy, but it's got to be green growth. It's got to really be something that demonstrably will tackle climate change because we seem to have allowed that to drop down the agenda in this recent period. And some of the detail of the policy that's been coming out, I don't think is as effective as it could have been.
0: What's the detail of policy you're thinking of there in that one? Because it strikes me, just from the outside at least, that one of the few things Labour has said on the economy under Keir Starmer has been actually fairly consistently they said we will do some elements of a green new deal the 28 billion pounds and the you know the national wealth fund and a few other things there
1: that's true I still think the scale's not right I know they argue it's even more than what we put forward but it wasn't if you remember we had a whole 500 billion reconstruction package I think Ed Miliband's done a good job in winning fighting the corner in that area we need to develop it more now and really get down to I think significantly more than was originally envisaged, but then also start talking about the real mechanisms, both in terms of the the, the way in which we raise funds, manage those funds, etc. I still think we need a national investment bank on a significant scale. I still think what, what we need to be doing now is looking at some of the detail of those proposals as part of the Um, Restoration of local and regional democratic government in this country as well. So you can really see how we scale it up, but then introduce the mechanisms for the management of that, but under democratic control. I also have to say, as well, the work that we did, and you were part of this, James, on alternative mechanisms of ownership, I think we seem to have lost some of that now because unless we get ownership of this, we won't get control of it and we won't reap the benefits on behalf of the community. So I'm pleased what Ed has been doing. Ed I think, has really fought hard to keep as much of the programme in place as possible. But it just needs a new element of scaling up and dynamism now. So how might we win that, I suppose, is the obvious question. I mean,
0: we are where we are with this leadership, with the Conservative government. What What are the steps that we might start to do, to actually take, to win this stuff?
1: Yeah, the issue for me now is, is to try and make sure, and I keep raising this with everyone I can talk to on the Labour front bench and elsewhere, maybe ad nauseum for some of them, I accept that. I might be boring people off. But um, I've been saying, look, learn the lessons of December 2019. December 2019, yes, it was a Brexit election, but I was throwing out so many policies that, one, every time I threw a policy out, for some reason, it got interpreted via Brexit, but also it began to lack credibility. And the lesson there is, I keep saying to people, if you want to win an argument over a policy, you need about 18 months. You know, you announce the policy, you explain some of the detail, you demonstrate the costing and funding of it, you rebut the arguments, and then you go, you tour on, around the country on the stomp, explain to people individually and what for their community it would mean. I think that needs 18 months. We're, we've got a general election 18 months. If we don't start doing it now, we've missed the boat and – we then go into an election where we haven't sufficiently built up sufficient momentum around an individual policy, but we haven't welded them together as well in an overall narrative. And that's the lesson for me from December 19. But remember, that election came two years early uh, and it was all Brexit. We'd have another couple of years, I think. We would have been able to bed down because if you look at the individual policies we were producing individually, they were quite popular but individually they didn't mount up and they overwhelmed people as well because there were so many in such a short period of time. So I think if we can try and convince the Labour front bench that they need to be doing stuff early now. Keir Starmer's announced these missions, fine, but no one really knows what they are about, what they are. they don't seem to be an overall narrative. That needs to be tightened up. But we've got to build almost a, a campaigning momentum around uh, a, a narrative, a vision, if you like, of course, but then also in specific areas of policy that make them real for people. I still think we'll have a Labour government. I still think that. But don't underestimate the ability of the Tories with the media on their side to narrow the poll lead. And the polling that I've seen means our, our vote is pretty soft. A lot of our poll leaders about um, Tory voters going to uh, don't know. And they might go back to the Tories if we're not careful, if we're not convincing about what we can do and how we can change their lives in addition to that, I'm worried about voter suppression that the Tories are introduced to, that, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the local government elections, but I'm worried about that. I'm also worried about young people who are they're, they're politically still engaged. A lot of the, young, the people involved in the disputes recently are young people. They seem to be taking an industrial trade union strategy along an electoral strategy. And I think we've, we've got to enthuse them in a number of areas and so, so i think the opportunities are all there it it just needs now a serious discussion about how we use strategically the next 18 months up to the next election but it has to be on the basis of a really solid policy program now that can that can convince people that we are going to well we are going to change the world to be honest
0: and do you think Keir Starmer's up for changing the world at this point in time?
1: That's the obvious sort of question <laughs> that somebody might pose to you. I have yet to see the evidence that he has that sort of dynamic objective, if you like. And it's almost trying to say to him, that this is the sort of enthusiasm you need to display. You know, it's all well and good knocking the toys. You know, going on the radio at the moment or TV to have a go at the Tories is, is relatively easy. The problem that we're getting, and I've heard it in the interviews today, as soon as they say, Well, what would you do? If you haven't got a coherent answer, you're shredded and you know, learned a lesson. I've been on those 10 past eight radio 4 today program interviews, and you know, and I've also screwed some of them up as well. You learn that lesson, and where you screw up is when they say, What would you do? and you haven't got that answer. Or you haven't got it in sufficient detail or convincing. And um, for me, from the early days until because I was had a chance for nearly five years, I remember, in those early days, you learned that lesson. And then you well, you briefed me when I went onto those interviews, James. You we had to be really tight on every question that could possibly come up, and every answer had to be there. And towards the end, I think I got it. Uh, maybe not as successfully as some, but I I got it in the sense that at least I felt well prepared. I knew what we were. About and I knew how to respond to those questions and also how best to convince people. I don't think we're there at the moment, and that that's the sort of the hard work, the heavy lifting that we need to do for the Labour Party now.
0: I mean, I'd share your your concerns about the the, the Conservative Party, or at least your assessment of them, which is that after a, a couple of months of sort of flapping around, Rishi Sunak seems to be getting his act together, like quite noticeably on the Brexit deal. On, I mean, it's unpleasant on the small boats, and now I thought it was quite. You know, in a fairly thin budget, the stuff around childcare was an obvious way to try and close off a Labour attack line. Uh, something that the Labour Party had a bit talked about is now, you know, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board on this one. Um, and there's complacency if you don't think like that.
1: You can see what the strategy is for them. It's steady the ship. That's the first thing. Just steady the ship economically because, you know, the economy is stupid. is the real issue in any election. So steady the ship on that. Try and get to the point where inflation has dropped by the end of the year. Build up a bit of reserves and then for the budget in next year, spring of next year, ease out some of that money so people feel the feel-good factor begins to return. So you can see that's the strategy. Alongside that is the most disgusting element – which is choose a scapegoat. So this time it's asylum seekers, so they'll run a racist camp. Well, they already are with the legislation they've introduced now. So steady the ship, find a scapegoat that can mobilise some part of the, the base itself. And at the same time, they'll use the asylum strategy, attacking asylum seekers to fend off the Reform Party and Farage and all that sort of thing. You can see this strategy is absolutely obvious. And they're open to stealing a few of the the policies from Labour just to puncture the Labour balloon. You know, the childcare was straight out of our 2019 manifesto, largely, although not done well enough. And I was trying to explain to someone in one interview, I said, actually, if we'd have won in 2019, we would be into our fourth year of a Labour government. And actually, the childcare strategy would have all been in place. But it would have been based upon people being properly paid, the, the childcare places being properly funded and also the staff themselves, professionalised and respected and given the opportunity of enhancing their qualifications and skills, etc. And we would, that would have been in place by now. So you can see how they can steal some elements of it. And Labour should criticise that, critique it so it's seen as not as effective as it could be. But also you've got to be able to say, well, that's why it isn't good enough but this is what we'd do. And we haven't got to the this is what we'd do yet in a number of areas. That's the problem. John,
0: there's something else just to sort of uh, to kind of wrap up on this point, I suppose. But it's just, you'd have, you'd have seen the news this morning about Credit Suisse and what's been happening with the U.S. banking system in particular over the last uh, sort of weeks or so. I was just um, interested in your in your views on this because it feels like there's a glimmer of where well, we've been here before. There's quite a glimmer now of 2008 about it. And your own sort of take on events and where you think the, the correct response might be.
1: Yeah, I, I'm edgy about it. I I listened to your interview on Novara about how, how it work, you know how our banks work here. You know, we've got the big ones, So we haven't we haven't got that same. Number of those smaller banks, like they are in America, so that's understand that. But now it's credit squeeze. You think, oh God, I'm really getting anxious now. This is it means they've been playing the same games as largely as they did before 2008. So the, the, the mismanagement, the speculation, the gambling seems to be inherent. What worried me as well is if you look at what the Tories are doing on legislation, they're putting through, the Markets Bill, etc they're removing some of the um, protections that came up after 2007, 2008. When that debate took place, I could not believe it. And I said then, I, it's almost like watching the car crash happening all over again in slow motion. It might not be on that scale by any means, but you can see the vulnerability there. And I, in the debate in Parliament, I just said to him, have you not learned the lessons of what went on? Now, this might not be on anywhere near a similar scale, But you never know. These things infect. The infection spreads very, very quickly because it's a confidence matter. I was the first MP to raise Northern Rock in in Parliament, and no one was listening to me. And I can remember Yvette Cooper was on the front bench, rushed out to get a briefing about it. But it didn't take long before people were queuing up outside Northern Rock to get their money out. These infections spread very, very quickly. So I'm anxious I'm anxious. I'm just hoping that people, on Credit Suisse, they they sort it out very, very rapidly. But also, there, there needs to be another stand back now just to do some testing of the system again and individual banks, where they're at and what protections are in place. Now, there was an element of that happening under Mark Carney, if you remember. They were doing a lot of stress tests. I would like them to, first of all, go through that stress testing again, but I'd like them to be more open and transparent about that, particularly with the sort of information they're providing at the government level to see what, again, what sort of protections need to be put in place. But otherwise, we're back into revealing speculation that's going on, and, and we're back to the casino economy again. Not that we ever greatly left it, I suppose. <laughs> One of the things I've been raising is the point that Ampetov has been making, you know, about the way speculation about food in particular has been taking place on a global scale and that's read, led into what that you know the unite report last week about greed inflation greedflation i think that's exactly right so the war openness and transparency about the opening up of the debate around the whole casino economy that's sort of reinventing itself very rapidly and very intensively in this recent period i think is important Thank you for listening
0: to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.